If you'll please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, and I understand that uh, this might be a bit of a review. Uh, Pastor Carl looking at uh, Luke 6 last week, uh, last Sunday evening, on the theme of judging, so um, I hope that uh, I won't contradict or say anything that he would disagree with, but uh, nonetheless, um, this is the text that we will uh, reflect on uh, this evening. But before we do so, let's turn to the Lord once again in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good and a faithful God. And our Father, we pray that you would instruct us, that you would teach us, that your spirit would be active amongst us. Our Father, be with us, we pray. Give us wisdom and insight. In Jesus' precious name, amen. One of the classic and most beloved movies from my childhood is a film entitled The Princess Bride. It is a very quotable and memorable movie appealing to a wide audience. There's a scene at the top of a cliff where one character says his favorite word, inconceivable. Then one of his friends, Inigo Montoya, turns to him and says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Today we are going to look at a verse from the scripture, which is well known and frequently quoted, but all too often, those who use it should be told, you keep using that verse. I do not think it means what you think it means. Many a Christian has made a comment in person or online grieving over a specific example of immorality or the godlessness of society And they have received the response that their concern for another person or of people in general was illegitimate because Jesus says that we are to judge not. Matthew 7.1 will be our verse for today. Do not judge or you too will be judged. I recently began a sermon series at our church entitled Rightly Dividing the Word of Truth. The title is given from the New King James translation of 2 Timothy 2.15. In the sermon series, what we are doing is going through a variety of texts which are frequently misquoted, misunderstood, and misapplied. The objective in doing this series is twofold. First, we want to rightly understand what the specific texts are saying. And then second, This is an opportunity to think about and to be reminded of the practices which will help us with our general Bible reading and study. And when I thought about doing this series on rightly discerning the word of truth, one verse that I knew I wanted to deal with was Matthew 7.1. And I was pleased to find an author that agrees with my inclination that this may well be the most well-known scripture in the general public. Daniel Doriani writes, Years ago, the best-known text in Scripture was John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But today, the best-known passage might be Matthew 7.1. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. Another writer says, one could easily argue that Matthew 7.1 is by far the most frequently misapplied verse in the entire Bible, used and abused by... People may not be able to tell you where in the Bible you'll find this verse, 
but they'll tell you that it's in there and it's on the lips of Jesus. And the tragedy is that though this is a well-known text, it is a poorly understood text. You keep using that verse, but I do not think that it means what you think it means. Well, what does this verse mean? And that is what we want to think about this evening. And we're going to reflect on this command to judge not under three headings. The desire to judge not, the context of judge not, and then briefly in conclusion, the application of judge not. The desire to judge not. Let us begin by thinking how and why this verse is misunderstood. Why is it that there is a desire in the human heart and in the human experience to not be judged? Daniel Doriani also writes, Judge not is the sort of statement that our culture would eagerly embrace without bothering to discover precisely what Jesus meant by it. Our society embraces it because taken at face value, it is a permissive statement. Judge not, as some take it, means that you are not to, under, under any circumstances, make a personal judgment on me. You are not to question my actions or my words. I would like to have the liberty to do whatever I want, whatever makes me feel good. And if you say anything against this freedom, then I will tell you not to judge. You are to let me be my authentic self. You are not to tell me that what I am doing is wrong and definitely not that it is offensive to God. As a culture, we have been taught for many years to follow our feelings We are to listen to our hearts. We are to let our conscience be our guide. Our standard of what is right and wrong, the basis for our ethical and moral decisions, comes from within. We are the determiners of our ethics, our morality, and even of truth. And what has happened is that God has been removed and rejected from being an authority from being the authority. And he has been replaced by self. We want to be and we declare that we are the authority over ourselves. We govern ourselves. There is no higher standard to which one can appeal. This mantra of judge not is embraced so that people have a justification for doing whatever they want to do, whatever makes them feel good and happy. It provides a shield for sin, allowing the individual to avoid any external accountability. Because we look not to God or to an objective standard, but within to determine right and wrong, we live in a subjective age. What is right for one person may or may not be right for me. Since we are all rulers of our own independent lives, there cannot be principles or morals which apply to everyone. And if you say that there are, then you are viewed as unenlightened and a byproduct of a past archaic age. The expectation is that we are to affirm everyone's right to do as they please, to live as they want. We are to be open and understanding. We are to have a posture of curiosity and not condemnation. If you say that an act or a behavior is universally wrong, then you are going against the the philosophy of society and you'll be told to judge not. That's why the world knows this verse. 
They throw it out. Don't judge me. Judge not. That's what the Bible says. And Christians are regularly accused of not abiding by Matthew 7.1. Many assert that Christians, or at least those who take the commands of the Bible seriously, are full of judgment. And why? Why is that accusation made? Because our mission is to let our light shine. We are to reflect the light of Christ. And those in darkness hate the light. Jesus says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. As a result of this, people reject the light. They reject Jesus. They reject his commands. And they reject those who are faithful to him. Bible-believing Christians hold to an ethical framework. We have absolute standards of morality that affects not just ourselves, but everyone. Christians believe that God, as creator, as judge, as sovereign, has every right to tell people, his creatures, as individuals and as societies, how we are to function and live. We believe that his word is truth. He tells us what is right and what is wrong. And if we are to live stable lives, if we are to build our house on the rock, then we need to hear the words of Jesus and put them into practice. And sadly, our society, one that is most unstable, does not want believers to be salt and light, but instead says that Christians should not judge. After all, we're reminded that Jesus was loving. He didn't judge, but he hung out with sinners. In our society, to personally judge someone is closely related to, if not even a synonym, for hate. Only those who hate judge, whereas to love means that you accept people without judgment, without critiquing them or their choices. This is the philosophy of the world. This is what we see day in and day out. This is what the people who we rub shoulders with adhere to. It's even sad. I saw a video uh, on Father's Day where a young lady went and interviewed people and asked them, what is a father? And you can see the wheels churning because everyone's thinking, how can I answer this? How should I answer this? How can I, what can I say without being offensive to people? What can I say without sounding judgy and so forth? It's scary when you can't even figure out what it means to be a father. And when we look at the philosophy of the world, there's much that a genuine believer would push back at concerning this skewed understanding of Christianity and of reality that is held by our culture. First, the foundation of the ethics of our society needs to be questioned. Is the heart, is our feelings really the best determiner of right and wrong? How did it go in the Bible when everyone did what was right in their own eyes? And read the book of Judges and see how that went. And if you critique or judge, does that really mean that you hate? Or to look at it from the other way, if you love someone, 
Are you going to be completely permissive and approving of their behavior all of the time? And as a parent, I'll tell you, I love my kids, but I am not always approving and permissive of their behavior all of the time. And also, it takes a great revision of the gospel to say that Jesus did not judge people. He was not timid about revealing sin in people's lives. He was gracious, but not timid. We need to be aware of the culture in which we live and prepare to engage those who view this verse as a blanket prohibition against judging. We need to be ready to give a defense of the gospel and also why we hold the standards that we do of righteousness and morality. The reality is that some who would name the name of Christ have been influenced by the ideas and the ideals of the world. It is easy and attractive to fall into the trap of the world. It is enticing to want to go along with the philosophy of the day and not stick out. I have another tie that I should have worn, and some of you have probably seen it. It's of all these fish going in one direction, and then a fish which symbolizes Christ going in the other direction. And that's what we feel like sometimes, isn't it? We're always pushing against the flow of this world. And so we come to a text like this, and we need to be reminded, how are we supposed to rightly interpret this? Why is it that we are willing to go against the flow of this world in which we live? This is a well-known verse. And the reason why this verse is so popular and quoted is because, as a mantra, it fits in perfectly with the narrative that our society wants. Leave me alone. Let me do whatever I want, whatever feels good to me. Judge not. You keep using that verse, but I do not think that it means what you think it means. And our second point is the context of judge not. And earlier I read the quote, judge not, is not, judge not is the sort of statement that our culture would eagerly embrace without bothering to discover precisely what Jesus meant by it. So the question we need to ask is, what did Jesus mean by it? And one principle that is so important when it comes to studying and understanding the scripture is to take verses in their context. And so we're going to think about the context of this verse. And we're going to do that by looking at sphere, three spheres. The biblical sphere. And then narrow it down to the sphere of the sermon. How this verse fits into the Sermon on the Mount. And then finally the immediate sphere. Uh, verses 1 through 5 of chapter 7. So of course we're going to do this quickly and take a bird's eye view of it. But we begin with the context of the Bible. The broadest sphere. What does the Bible in general teach about judging other people? And that is the heart of the discussion. Are those who follow Jesus permitted or even encouraged to judge other people, both people in the church and those in the world? And judge in the sense that you know, when people throw out this verse, they're meaning, you know, don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me how to live my life. Well, as Christians, does... God give us the right to come alongside other people and speak into their lives. 
Are we allowed to, to, to critique their lives and say whether they are acting in a righteous or an unrighteous manner? Well, let's see what the scripture says. And I think one of the most courageous acts in all of the scripture is found in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And you're familiar with this story. Nathan the prophet is told by God to go and rebuke King David. David has committed adultery. He has taken another man's wife. Then to cover up the sin, he had the man murdered. And God is angry. And Nathan comes to David and tells him a story which invokes David's own sense of justice. David is agitated, and as a king, as the king, he wants to call the transgressor of the story to account. He says that he deserves to die. And then Nathan says those powerful and bold words. You are that man. You have sinned. You have acted in the same sinful way as the transgressor in the story. That man that you are so angry at, so incensed at, represents you. Correcting others is not just a job for the Old Testament prophets. God calls on his people to call out sin in the lives of one another. Paul writes, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. We are called to identify sin in the lives of others and to help restore them to a right relationship with the Lord. This is a form of judgment, a needed form of judgment. For a second biblical example, we move from judging the failings of another to looking for evidence of their godly character, to judging and evaluating their righteousness. Paul, especially in the pastoral epistles, the letters to Timothy and Titus, gave all sorts of qualities that church officers, that deacons and elders are to possess. In other words, the church, the people in the community of faith are to evaluate the life and character of individuals before they are set apart as a deacon or an elder. And this requires godly, spirit-directed judgment. In addition, the Bible frequently tells us that we are to be wise concerning the world in which we live. We are repeatedly told to avoid the enticement and the traps of this world. And to do so requires a spirit of godly judgment. We are to, by the power of the Spirit, identify that which is harmful to ourselves and our families and one another and to flee such behavior as Joseph fled from Potiphar's wife. There are many examples and passages from the Scripture in which we are called to examine the character and lives of other people and ourselves. And we are called to do so because holiness is taken very seriously in the Scriptures. And if we take holiness seriously, then there is a place for us to rightly judge. And if that is what the Bible teaches, then what was Jesus thinking about when he said, judge not? And so let us move down to the next sphere, the context of the sermon. This text is part of the Sermon on the Mount, which comprises Matthew chapters 5 through 7. 
In this sermon, Jesus talks about what it means to be his follower, what it means to be a citizen of God's kingdom. In chapter 7, Jesus' focus is on judging. And the great and glorious truth that stands behind this chapter is that God is the true and right judge. The psalmist says, Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people in his faithfulness. Psalm 96, 13. God is the judge. All people are accountable to him for what we say, think, and do. And we are not to try and take on the position of the divine and ultimate judge that belongs to God and God alone. Remember that as Jesus is preaching the sermon, he had the Pharisees and the religious leaders very much in mind. Time and again, he has taught his followers that his way, the right way, God's way, is not what they see displayed before them in the actions and attitudes of the Pharisees. They are to pray, but not the self-promoting prayers of the Pharisees. They are to fast, but not to impress the public like the Pharisees. They are to lay up treasures in heaven, not treasures on earth like the Pharisees. They are to judge, but not like the Pharisees. Not like the Pharisees who, in their judgment of others, try and usurp the place of God. Not like the Pharisees who are quick to speak condemnation on others. Not like the Pharisees who dragged the woman before Jesus trying to trap him, wanting to see if he would allow them to stone her. The Sermon on the Mount does not ban all judging, but it bans a certain kind of judging the kind of judging that we see in the Pharisees, the judging that exalts self and makes a human the determiner of right and wrong, the one who decides what is accurate and should be done, the kind of judging that looks down in pride on other people who do not measure up. And the fact that believers are called to a manner of judging is obvious by this chapter. Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Well, who are the dogs? Who are the pigs? How do you figure this out? Do people have signs around their neck saying, I'm a pig or I'm a dog? No. Jesus expects that we will, in submission to the Father, the righteous judge, be discerning. We will, by the Holy Spirit, have insight to determine who would fall under each category and respond accordingly. Verses 17 to 20. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit. But a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus by their fruit you will recognize them. Jesus says, watch out for the false prophets. Well, how do we know if someone's a false prophet or not? Are there big arrows and flashing lights over their heads saying, false prophet, watch out? 
No, Jesus says we will recognize them by their fruits. We are to look at their lives. We are to judge whether the fruit that we see is good and godly or if it is bad. And you can read Jude chapter, or Jude chapter 1 verse 4 for an example uh, where he makes this connection where false teachers invariably enter into immorality. There's a connection between false teaching and immorality. And Jesus highlights that here as well. Believers are to look at those who would teach them with a critical eye. Now, genuine teachers will not be perfect, but they will have a love for holiness, a desire for Christ-likeness, a passion for righteousness. False teachers, on the other hand, will bear bad fruit. And all of us are called to be wise. We are to evaluate the lives of others to see if the fruit is good, and therefore the tree is good, or if the fruit is bad, and therefore the tree is bad. And this, too, is a type of judgment. The prohibition on judging is clearly not a universal or complete prohibition. Jesus has clear moral standards, which he declares in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus makes it clear what good fruit is, how we are to live, what a righteous life looks like. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verse 48, that we are to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus takes righteousness very seriously. He defines for us what is good fruit and says, you are to look for it. You are to look for it in your own lives and in the lives of others. Jesus tells his followers that we are to be wise and discerning when we consider the actions, attitudes, and behavior of the world, of our leaders, of others, and of ourselves. And we do so recognizing that God is on the throne. He gives us the principles by which we are to judge. He gives us the commands by which we measure ourselves and other people. He gives us the wisdom through the Holy Spirit by which we make judgments and decisions. Looking at the Sermon on the Mount as a whole gives us a much-needed corrective as to how we are to understand the verse about not judging. And then let us narrow our focus a little more and look at the immediate context of our verse. The context of the verse. This verse, this statement, judge not, is not an isolated statement, but it is to be read in the surrounding passage because Jesus is making a point about judging other people. Verse 1 does not stand alone from verses 2 through 5. In verses 1 and 2, Jesus says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. If we judge in a godless and arrogant way, then we are inviting judgment in return. If we puff ourselves up, then we are asking for trouble. But what about if we judge in a kind, gracious, merciful way, seeking to judge in line with what Christ desires. I preached uh, this sermon this morning, and as a concluding hymn, we sang, Take my life and let it be. And it struck me as we were singing that hymn, Take my life and let it be. Take my will. Take my mind. Take all that I am and conform it to Christ. And make it 
like Jesus. What happens when we judge with such a mind, such a heart, such a passion for Christ and His kingdom? What happens when we judge in light of His grace and mercy? That's the judgment that I want to be judged by. One that is characteristic of Christ's mercy and grace and love. To explain what verses 1 and 2 mean, Jesus gives a wonderful illustration in verses 3 through 5. You have a brother who has a speck in their eye. There's unrighteousness, a small measure of unrighteousness, but unrighteousness nonetheless in your brother's eye. It's annoying to have a speck in your eye. It's bothersome, and it must be dealt with. And Jesus is not saying that the speck should be ignored. It is right to deal with it, but how is it to be dealt with? Jesus says, you see the speck in your brother's eye, but you pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. And Jesus wants you to visualize this. And some comedians are gifted at using visual humor. One of the books I read on this passage referenced The Carol Burnett Show. And maybe some of you are familiar with that show. Or maybe some of you prefer John Cleese and Monty Python. Or maybe, or maybe Mr. Bean. You know, these visual comedians. Now imagine a sketch where someone has a log, a literal plank in their eye. Now, Andrew and I were talking about this. I always visualize the plank going this way. She views it going this way. <laughs> Nonetheless, picture a log in someone's eye. And then this person from across the room sees someone. It's like, oh, you've got a speck in your eye. And so then they're like meandering. They've got this huge log that's throwing their weight off. They're coming towards this person, trying to, oh, let me help you with the speck. And they pull out the tweezers, and you know, they can't, they're trying to reach for the speck in your eye with the tweezers. Like, how would you feel if someone's like this, reaching at your eye with tweezers? It's an absurd illustration. It's supposed to be ridiculous. It's supposed to make us laugh. But we're not meant to laugh for very long. Because there are times when the subject of this absurd illustration is us. You are the man. You are the woman. We are the ones with planks in our eyes. We are the ones who are making a big deal about the speck in someone else's eye while ignoring our own plank. And Jesus says, before you deal with the speck, and he says deal with the speck, but before you deal with the speck, deal with the plank. And God's people will get this. Those who are kingdom citizens will understand this means that we are to run to God for mercy. We are to confess our sins. We are to have a right perspective on who we are. And who are we? We are sinners saved by grace. Viewing ourselves in this manner will help us to not only hate sin, the sin that nailed our Savior to the cross, but it will help us have compassion on the sinner. With humility, we come to our brother or sister and say, I love you. I want to help you. I want to see you honoring the Lord in your life. So let's talk. I'm willing to bear this burden with you. 
I am willing to fight this battle with you. Let us strive for purity and wholeness and Christ-likeness together. Can I help you in the Lord? Remove the speck from your eye. When Jesus said, judge not, he was trying to get their attention. The Pharisees were quick to judge. They were quick to look down on other people. They were quick to condemn. That was the manner of their religion. You know, if you would ask the person on the street in the first century, you know, what is religion all about? Well, from the example of the Pharisees, it's about judging. It's about condemning. It's about rules and laws and adherence to them. And these Pharisees, they're oblivious to the fact that there are planks in their eyes. But unlike the Pharisees, the priority of God's people is not judgment, but the growth of the kingdom of God. Two verses before Matthew 7, 1, that says, judge not. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God. That's our passion, the kingdom of God. We want to see it grow. We want to see it strengthened. We want to see people hear the truth. We want those who know the truth to grow up in their faith. And so, by extension, there will be times when we need to evaluate, discern, and judge as part of this kingdom focus. But these are the means to the ends of seeing the kingdom flourish. The phrase, judge not, was never meant to be read in isolation. What we are to do is read this verse in light of the rest of the section, the rest of the sermon, and the rest of the Bible. And when we do so, we understand what Jesus means. The problem is, so many people don't read this text in that way. They read this verse, or even just the first part of verse seven, of verse one of chapter seven, and think that it teaches them all they need to know about judging. They want to use it to justify selfish and sinful behavior. You keep using that verse, but I do not think that it means what you think it means. In conclusion, the application of judge not. What do we need to hear from the command to judge not? When we hear this phrase, what does that mean for our lives? How do we apply it today? Well, why did Jesus say it? What is he warning against? And the kind of judging that Jesus condemns is a judging that exalts self, that puts ourselves on the throne, that says, I have the right to judge. I have the right to determine what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. It is a judging that looks down in pride on other people who do not measure up to our human standards. And so, yes, we're all prone to have the spirit of judgment that Jesus is prohibiting here. And genuine believers will feel the sting of this command. But also, when we see the obliviousness of the Pharisees, we are reminded of the obliviousness of some in our own day. Ironically enough, it is those who frequently appeal to this verse to justify their actions who are the ones doing what Jesus is prohibiting. 
Like the Pharisees, many have rejected God as judge and have set themselves up as authorities. They believe that they are in a position to determine that which is right and wrong. And even if those today say that it is only over themselves that they have such authority, at the end of the day, they have the same spirit as the Pharisees. They have rejected God and replaced him with themselves. And to them, Jesus says, judge not. You are not in a position to judge. Instead, they are to submit to his judgment and his authority. And that's really the heart of what Jesus is saying. We judge, we evaluate, we discern under God, under his judgment. And I was thinking a parallel could be that of the role of a pastor. The role of a pastor, pastors are called shepherds. But we're only shepherds under the chief shepherd. Christ is the chief shepherd. And we are obliged to pastor, to shepherd, according to the principles set out by Christ, according to him, his example, under his authority, for his glory. And if we don't shepherd in that way, then we are false shepherds. God is the judge. God has sent the parameters of how to judge, what manner we are to judge. And so we have a scope in which we can enact judgment in our spheres. But we are to do it recognizing that God is the judge. And in conclusion, I just want to draw out three um, principles of application. And the first is submission to God, the judge. We're to submit to God as judge. And we're to submit to him as judge, recognizing that he is our judge. We will stand before him. And are you ready to stand before God? If we are in Christ, if we have believed in Jesus, if his blood has washed us from our sins, if he took the punishment for our guilt upon himself, then there is no condemnation. Then we can gloriously sing, redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Then we have the hope. We don't need to be afraid of standing before God. Not because we are so great, but because our Savior is so great. And so we remember that God is our judge, and also that God is our judge, and he sees how we treat other people. In our Bible study, we've been going through James, and we did that passage in James chapter 3, uh, where James says, how can you with one, in one minute praise God, and the next minute curse your brother or sister who is created in the image of God. God sees. He sees our inconsistencies. He sees when we judge our brothers and sisters in ways that are more akin to the Pharisees. And so we need to remember that and seek to obey the Lord.
And also, when we think of the fact that God is a judge, remember that he is a judge of other people. And when we interact with them, we remember that he is the one on the throne. And we judge only so far as it is in accord with his will, his rule, his commands, his spirit, and his grace. Any judgment or discernment that we do, we do so mindful of the authority of God. So we remember that God is the judge. And second, we are to strive for purity. One writer says, those who mishandle this verse often use it as a shield for sin, a barrier to keep others at bay, allowing them to justify living as they please without any regard for moral boundaries or accountability. You know, you think of a shield, and these people want judge not to be their shield, and so then they can stand behind the shield and do whatever they want, live however they want. And that's not what Jesus was getting at, of course, when he made this declaration. Jesus is passionate for righteousness. His desire is that we be pure. And so when we think about this idea of judging and the idea of sin and immorality, we should not be looking for ways to justify our sin and excuse our behavior. But instead, we should be looking for ways to grow in godliness and righteousness and holiness. We should be looking for ways to become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Things like reading Fox's Book of Martyrs and reading the stories of the saints of old and what they did, their lives of faith, and how that should encourage us and bless us and spur us on to righteousness. So we are to strive for purity, not to look for ways to justify our sin, but to look for ways to kill our sin. And then thirdly, we are to help one another grow in holiness. In order to grow in godliness, we may need to be rebuked by someone else. We may need to feel the sting of correction. And if a brother or sister boldly comes up to us and says, I want to talk. I see something in your life that I don't think is glorifying God. Our natural reaction will be to put up our defenses and to get our backs up against the wall. But we need to recognize that maybe just like Nathan sent to David, they've been sent by God to help us grow to help us become more like Christ. And so we need to prayerfully and humbly listen to what they have to say. And maybe we also need to be prepared to go to a brother or sister and to help them. You know, sometimes we're oblivious. We have blind spots. We don't see our sin. And it takes a brother or sister to come along and to help us. And maybe that's what we're called to do, to be the one who will reach out, who will help, who will restore a brother or sister. Jesus says, judge not. And this isn't an overarching, complete ban. This doesn't mean that we are never to talk to one another, to evaluate 
how other people are conducting themselves. We need to read this verse in its context and realize what it's important. And that is following the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our Savior. And we are to seek to live holy lives. And our responsibility is to help one another live holy lives for the glory and honor of our precious Savior. Let us pray. Our Father, thank you so much for Jesus Christ. Thank you for who he is. And our Father, thank you for the church that we have been called and joined together as a body to help one another, to bless one another, to support one another, to serve one another. And our Father, help us to do just that. And help us to do so with the desire to see the kingdom of God go forth, to see it flourish, to see it strengthened. Our Father, thank you so much for this congregation. Thank you for Pastor Muller. And our Father, I do pray for your blessing upon each and every one, for your honor and for your glory. Amen.